Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Nicholas Dufus and today I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia with my guest expert, Dr. Nomal Patel. After completing ENT training in Australia, Nomal completed a Master of Surgery in Gene and Stem Cell Therapy of the Inner Ear. He undertook further subspecialty training in the USA with Professor Anil Lalwani in New York, followed by a second period with Professor Clough Shelton in Utah. Nomal's special interests include minimally invasive endoscopic ear surgery, cochlear implant and skull base surgery. Today's podcast is on sudden sensorineural hearing loss. Nomal, welcome. Oh, thanks very much, Nicholas, and thanks for the opportunity. No problem. So we'll start with the first question. How do you define the entity of sudden sensorineural hearing loss? I generally try and keep things simple. Really just the common definition, which is a hearing loss over three frequencies of more than 30 decibels over three days. And what are the current theories on the cause of sudden sensorineural hearing loss and what evidence exists to support these theories? If we're talking about sudden sensorineural hearing loss, the bulk of sudden sensorineural hearing loss is considered idiopathic, which in medicine is, I guess, a way of us saying we're not quite sure. There's some data to suggest that it is an inflammatory cause for sensorineural hearing loss, and this is sometimes anecdotal with patients sometimes having, you know, before their hearing loss, having a cold or a flu there is one research study from the Halsey group, I believe, a histopathological study that showed that a patient who had sudden sensorineural hearing loss who subsequently died, they were able to get their temporal bones and showed high drops within the ear. So there's a thought that it's either a pressure phenomenon or inflammatory causes for the um, sudden sensorineural hearing loss. And there's also a possibility of vascular occlusion. So some patients will have predisposing causes for vascular occlusion such as hypertension or high cholesterol. That's the bulk of patients. Some patients who present with sudden sensorineural hearing loss of course have other causes. These may be tumours or MS. Um, IECA occlusions can sometimes present with sudden sensorineural hearing loss. How common is sudden sensorineural hearing loss and is there a particular group or groups of people that tend to get it? Um, it comes across the whole age spectrum but we typically, at least I typically quote patients, about a 1 in 10,000 chance of uh, idiopathic sudden sensorineural hearing loss. And other than uh, obviously the sensorineural hearing loss itself, are there any other signs or symptoms that patients may present with? So in my experience, they usually present with um, a sensation of fullness or blockage. And I know in the textbooks it's written that we sometimes see patients who have a preceding you know, viral erty or something like that, but often these patients will just present with a blockage or a fullness in their ear. If they do have dizziness at the time of presentation, it's usually portends a slightly worse outcome, but they sometimes present with the sudden deafness and an imbalance at the same time. And I think there's also, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of what I'm telling you is from the position statement from the American Academy in 2012, but there's a lot of association or a higher association of patients with anxiety and depression that present with uh, idiopathic sudden sensorineural hearing loss. Okay, and what are the key parts um, of a, a history that you take from a patient that presents with this? So what we're looking for is really things that um, could give us clues to other pathologies that may be involved. So we're looking to see if there are other, any other neurologically associated symptoms, if the patient has any, any background history, for example, of autoimmune conditions that may be associated with this. With these type of patients, we're looking also to take a thorough otological history. So just like we do with all otologic patients, sometimes patients present with hearing loss with barotrauma. So we want to know if there was a f extreme physical exertion that was going on that may be contributing to the hearing loss. 
we need to know if they've got other associated, uh, for example, cancers or malignancies and is metastatic disease a concern? Does the patient have a hyperviscosity syndrome that may be uh, giving you a clue as to what the cause for the hearing loss might be? So other bleeding pathologies, hematological conditions, comorbidities, very useful to know. And what are the key aspects of your examination of these patients? So, of course, like all patients, we examine the involved ear, the contralateral ear. We look at the patient's facial nerve, their vestibular function, their lower cranial nerves. But then I also like to include a thorough vestibular examination, but then we also try and see if there are any other neurological components that might be giving us a clue as to what's going on. I do, I do recall one particular patient that I saw at North Shore a few years ago that presented with sudden hearing loss and a hyperviscosity syndrome, and they ended up having a vascular occlusion of IECA, and they also presented with some contralateral limb weakness. So for these sort of clues can give us a, an idea as to what the potential cause is and how urgent it is for us to get the subsequent investigations. Are there any routine investigations that you arrange uh, for patients that present this way and why? So we normally, I mean, these patients normally present to us with an audiogram already, but of course if they don't have that, then that would probably be the key investigation apart from our clinical testing of hearing, so tuning fork and clinical testing, to work out whether the patient has a conductive component to the hearing loss or if it's sensorineural or mixed. And then uh, beyond that, depending on the patient profile, we need to sort of work out whether the patient needs an MRI urgently or not. And this would be dependent on comorbidities, but usually within the time frame of a week or two, we like to get an MRI for the patient to see if, you know, if there are any other intercurrent comorbidities. So we try and get those as soon as possible. With the audiogram, we're looking to do just uh, the usual speech frequencies and acoustic reflexes. Um, but beyond those, they're the two critical ones. The, the consensus statement in 2012 suggested that there's no real benefit from performing any subsequent blood tests unless we've got a strong suspicion. So, for example, if the patient has a background history of autoimmune, if you're concerned about Coogan syndrome, if they have intercurrent eye symptoms, then maybe we'll look for and do autoimmune markers. But these don't necessarily influence the immediate management. In terms of medical therapy, um, what evidence exists to support various types of medical therapy? The current guidelines is to suggest that we use oral steroids. So oral steroids, and, and the way my approach to that is to look at risk stratification for the patient. So when a patient comes to me with sudden deafness, we try and work out whether there are any other intercurrent comorbidities. Say, for example, the patient has a background of a psychiatric history or if they have insulin-dependent diabetes, that should influence your decision on whether you give them oral steroids and how much to give them and what type. But the typical oral steroids we give a patient is usually either prednisone or dexamethasone and we usually give up to a milligram a kilogram in uh, divided doses over a tapering 10 to 14 day course. And dexamethasone, I usually offer them four milligrams BD again in a tapering dose. If the patient is high risk, and I, and I recall a patient who was referred from the emergency department and they'd already been commenced on oral steroids and they did have a background history of anxiety and depression and by the time they saw me within uh, after a week of taking oral steroids, this patient was clearly very agitated and uh, in the office stood up and walked around and left the room and came back in and we elected to... Uh, stop the oral steroids at that at that time but even then over the weekend period he was admitted and scheduled so 
we have to remember that there are some quite serious complications that can occur in particular patients. Um, but if the patient is of a high risk, then um, we may consider the more salvage therapies that we'll talk about coming up, including intratympanic therapy. But if they're a low to medium risk patient, then we go ahead and, and offer them the oral steroids, usually for that two-week course. And then I typically will um, look for efficacy by performing another audiogram. Okay. And usually by then we'll have an MRI scan and we'll know whether there are any central causes, MS, IECA, anything that we're looking for, or intracochlear, intravestibular tumors, or obviously vestibular schwannoma that would have been excluded by then. And the follow-up with um, further physical examination or repeat audiogram, what time frame would you do that in? Of course, this is in the context of, uh, of um, how we work, but usually it's after the two-week period of, uh, of treatment. And if there's some improvement in hearing, then we'll talk to the patient about the pros and cons of ongoing oral therapy. If there's no improvement, and we particularly, I particularly look at the audiogram, so in terms of predicting outcomes with sudden deafness. If a patient has a mild to moderate sense renewal hearing loss and there's some early recovery in those first two weeks, we can give them a fairly good prognostication that they'll likely have some significant improvement in their hearing. If the hearing has a severe to profound presentation with our first audiogram or if the audiogram is pantonal or flat in nature, then that usually gives us an idea that the patient may not get a good outcome with their hearing. So we can caution the, or counsel the patient that either they may want to consider a second dose of oral steroids or we may do salvage intratympanic therapy. Now, intratympanic therapy and both of these treatments, in terms of Cochrane reviews, they have mixed outcomes. So the, the two largest and most robust series in randomized controlled trials that were, have been published in the last five years really give us 180 opinions. One says it, that it improved the outcomes, the spontaneous recovery outcomes with treatment improved from 30% in the control group which was untreated to 60% in the treated oral steroid group and the other case controlled and randomized trial showed that there was no improvement at all with oral steroids. Intratympanic therapy gets even more complicated. There's, there's no good studies that compare different methods of delivery, time courses of delivery, and standardize the patient data. But having said that, the rationale behind intratympanic therapy is twofold. First of all, oral steroids seem to work both with their anti-inflammatory effect, we think, and with the fact that they may reduce striovascularis and sodium-potassium ATPS function. So it may reduce hydrops and intramembrane fractures of the cochlea from that method. Intratympanic steroids are thought to work with similar mechanism, but of course they have to diffuse through the round window and possibly through the oval window and annular ligament into the inner ear and then diffuse to the apex of the cochlea. And they probably work as well by anti-inflammatory mechanisms and perhaps by, again, affecting the striovascularis. But there are many different techniques for delivering this. And so I counsel the patient when they come back in two weeks, if it's not improving, that we say, well, look, there are many different methods. The two that I offer the patients, it, it depends on um, the patient availability. And the two that I frequently use are either direct intratympanic injection with a spinal needle here in the office under local anesthetic, or we may, may tell the patient that we can have a grommet inserted, usually in the postero-inferior quadrant of the tympanic membrane, and the patient can self-deliver the steroids. Uh, the usual preparation in Australia is um, with usually compounded dexamethasone or methylprednisolone. There are intratympanic 
animal studies that show a better efficacy in animal models, in mammalian models, and this is mainly Canadian work, um, that shows that perhaps methylprednisolone may be more efficacious than prednisone or dexamethasone. But it depends on availability. So usually dexamethasone compounded or maxidex as an eye preparation is delivered through a grommet into the middle ear. There are several other methods used to deliver where we perform an operation and apply gel foam there or there are slow delivery mechanisms that involve sponge down towards the round window. None of those methods have shown any superior outcomes. So in essence if the patient doesn't have any significant improvement after two weeks or if they're high risk oral steroid patients we offer them intratympanic steroids as a salvage therapy. And the risks are low for that procedure. Of course, there are risks of, say, perforation or the treatment not working, but there isn't much clear evidence to show a worsening of hearing with intratopanic steroids. There is one paper that came out of Pittsburgh that shows that the hearing outcomes did reduce following intratopanic steroids, but this is cloudy uh, data as the patients were aggregated, the, the sudden deafness patients were aggregated with cochlear hydrops patients. So it's possible the patient may have been in a disease process where they were going to have a dip in their hearing anyway. But I think it's reasonable to counsel the patient that they may also get a worsening of hearing with the intratopanic steroids. But usually if a patient's got severe to profound hearing loss, they're usually prepared to take that risk. Thanks for that very thorough coverage of not just patient expectations and prognosis, but also what the, uh, the relevant therapies are and salvage options that exist. In the future, what sort of options do you think uh, may be possible, not just in terms of further salvage if all of these options that you've mentioned so far fail, but also future therapies that uh, might exist in the, the coming years? Well, um, maybe we can talk about future therapies in the spectrum of current therapies. So current therapies, of course, when we have a patient then who doesn't improve after that month-long treatment and we sometimes continue the intratympanic self-delivery for three to four weeks and repeat their audiogram and if there's no improvement then certainly by six to eight weeks if there's no improvement in the hearing with a severe to profound hearing loss or a pantonal audiogram then it's possible to counsel the patient and say it's highly unlikely that there'll be a spontaneous improvement. The likelihood of spontaneous improvement beyond three months is probably a lot less than 1%. There's been some Korean and Japanese data say that there's spontaneous recovery up to three months, but I think around Australia we must mainly tell patients beyond three months there's not going to be much recovery. So then we're dealing with severe to profound unilateral hearing loss with a likely intact cochlear pathway, cochlear, cochlear nerve pathway all the way up to the brain. And so we start with hearing assistive treatments, air conduction, hearing aids, hearing assistive devices. We need to, I, I normally counsel the patients about particular apps that may be available so that they can be aware if, for example, alarms are going off and they can't hear things, you can create vibration alarms on their iPhone. We can use FM systems sometimes in, the, in certain settings. But beyond that, we move to what's called contralateral rooting of sound devices, so, or cross-aids as we know in the laryngology world. And cross-devices work by picking up sound on the good ear and sending them usually via wired or these days via Bluetooth technology to the contralateral ear. Now this sometimes is poorly compliant. The patients don't like it because often they don't like wearing a hearing device on their good ear. There's a bicross version and these are usually have a, a higher compliance rate because the patient's used to wearing a hearing aid on the contralateral ear and this is where we send the sound via Bluetooth to their already aided ear. 
Um, but then beyond that, we start talking about bone-anchored hearing devices to bring in sound from the bad side to the good side. And there's mixed data on the outcomes on single-sided deafness. But I think it's fair to say that as a cohort, I counsel patients that about 50% of them within three to six months will probably be not too worried by their single-sided deafness in their particular work and home environment. Of the 50% that come back to you and are worried, we usually trial them with the cross device and the Baja, and both have similar efficacy. There's some newer work out um, published from uh, Dalhouse University showing that cross aids compared to Baja have similar, effic uh, similar efficacy and a fairly high compliance rate. So, of course, it must depend on your audiologist. But if the patient is happy with a Baja device, then we could consider offering them a bone-anchored hearing device, and that may be a um, discussion for a different podcast. But then a newer therapy that's been introduced mainly for tinnitus suppression in the setting of idiopathic sudden centrineural hearing loss was cochlear implantation around 2006-2007 in Germany, where these devices were implanted in a test cohort of 24 patients where they showed that significant improvement in tinnitus suppression and a significant improvement in sound awareness on that side. So since then, there's been an approval in Europe and then subsequently in the US and in Australia in the last 18 months for single-sided deafness implantation. So certainly then I counsel the patient about the potential benefits of cochlear implantation in this setting. And I think the larger subset, or the, the large groups around the world talking about single-sided implantation for cochlear implants show that Certainly there is an improved sound awareness and possibly better sound awareness than a Baja. Probably better speech understanding in noise than a Baja or a cross device, but not by a large amount. Probably not fabulous directional hearing or it improving the acoustic awareness such that they will get stereophonic sound again. I think it's important to counsel the patient that if they are considering a cochlear implant, that they have to have their expectations tempered a bit because they may not get that stereophonic sound that they're expecting. They may get better, better sound awareness than they were expecting. And certainly my own personal experience with single-sided deafness is very pleasing. The patients usually are very happy with it, mainly because they're, um, they've been hearing so recently and they uh, get very good sound awareness and very good tinnitus suppression. It still is a, su a superior device compared to cross and Baja for tinnitus suppression. But this is where I think your initial question of future therapies comes in. Because I think the next role for future therapies, which I think is what we're talking about, is a better delivery mechanism of, say, for example, steroids into the inner ear, or even, for example, a gene. And the gene that we're talking about is ATO1 or MATH1. Now, this is a gene that's been shown in mammalian models to convert supporting cells into hair cells. And we know that with a lot of sudden deafness, this is usually due to... The bulk of patients is due to an event within the inner ear and typically destruction of the hair cells. So it would be good if we had a therapy in a human to convert the supporting cells that are there into functioning hair cells. Now, we know that... In short-term mammalian models, this is possible with, the, with using a gene vector, usually an adeno-associated virus, and getting that adeno-associated virus via gene therapy to self-replicate and deliver MATH1 or ATO1 into those hair cells, we've been able to recover um, hearing in the mammalian model. Now, I think a cochlear implant may be a very nice delivery mechanism for steroids 
or for MATH1 or 801 to improve the outcomes of cochlear implantation. And I think that'll probably be the next step. Whether we go beyond that to offer intratympanic gene therapy within the next five to 10 years, it's a big leap because the main leap is in the delivery mechanism. And of course, there are a lot of regulatory problems, not just in controlling the delivery of the gene, but in just getting regulation through government and you know, in delivering a virus into an ear. So I think there are a lot of steps yet that need to be covered to try and restore hearing immediately when a patient walks in with an injection. It's within the realms of possibility that this could certainly happen in our lifetime. But I think as the next step, we'll probably be using those adjuncts in cochlear implantation to improve cochlear implantation outcomes. Okay, so to finish things off today, we're going to finish with the final word. The final word is an opportunity uh, for you to highlight a point of the discussion that you think is of particular importance or to mention something that we haven't talked about on the topic so far. So I'll hand over to you, Nomal, for the final word. Thanks, Nicholas. I think this is a really important final word. To any otolaryngologist that deals a lot with sudden deafness, they'll know what I mean, and that is that there is a big difference in quality of life between progressive deafness and sudden deafness. And this has been borne out throughout quality of life work. So I recall many times seeing a crying patient come in and really you're dealing a lot, there's a lot of counselling involved with sudden deafness because patients have a very significant quality of life defect that occurs when they wake up with no hearing on one side. And I think this is a very important point to make when we're not only dealing with these patients but counselling these patients because usually what we find is if we can counsel the patients through the first few weeks, and I've certainly had many patients that really struggle emotionally with that first month or two, particularly with the tinnitus overlay, because it keeps them awake a lot at night, that um, you know they get very close to the mental edge in terms of um, their dealings with their family and uh, with their own health, and think sometimes of taking their own life. And I think we sometimes don't take the concept of sudden deafness importantly enough in terms of quality of life. So I think if I can give you a final word, it's that it's a very important quality of life issue compared to chronic deafness. Because um, if a patient suddenly goes deaf, they suddenly lose a significant part of their hearing in noise. And this can make a major difference in terms of their uh, expectations for the rest of their life. So I think if we can all incorporate that concept into when we're dealing with the patients, then... Uh, I think we'll have a healthier and happier cohort of sudden death patients. Thank you very much for that, Nirmal. Um, you can find this and other podcasts on the iTunes uh, or Stitcher accounts at ENT Expert Opinion. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also visit the website, entexpertopinion.com. And we are happy to be contacted by email at entexpertopinion at gmail.com.